Good morning, my fellow ballers. Welcome back to another episode of Ballin' with Tyler Todd. You, episode 73. And this episode's gonna have a lot of stuff to cover. So first, first off, we're gonna have football week seven recap. And I'm only picking, I'm only picking, picking, slow down here. Only picking a few select games to cover and give like grades on and talk about recap because some of the games were absolute blowouts. Blowouts. Blowouts this week. So we're gonna start first with Cincinnati over Baltimore. 41 to 17. The Bengals won. Yeah. Way to go, Cincy, beating up on the Ravens. And that, the bank with that, the Bengals deserve a grade of A plus. Everything the Bengals needed to do to defeat the Ravens on the road, they did. They battled through a slow start offensively to buy time before they could explode. They used tight end CJ Uzuma as a pressure release valve to the tune of two touchdowns when running back Joe Mixon couldn't get going, and then eventually Mixon got going. They needed a big game from rookie first-round pick Jamar Chase, and better still, they got a career-high 201 receiving yards and a touchdown from him. That's pretty insane for a rookie. They needed to contain Lamar Jackson both on the ground and in the air and did, leaving Baltimore with nothing more to do other than move aside atop the AFC North. Yes, the Bengals are in first in that division. That is insane. Who would have thought last year's worst team? Insane, dude. Incredible turnaround. For the Ravens, they deserve a D. The only reasons the Ravens escape a failing grade is because they actually put up a fight for a good chunk of this game, holding the Bengals to only three points for much of the first half and answering an awakened onslaught by Joe Burrow and company with some big plays of their own as the teams exchange the lead time and time again. But when Chase decided to take over the game, pretty much Baltimore couldn't stop him. There was nothing the Ravens could do about it, and that's where their grade began swirling around the porcelain bowl. Chase reeled in more than 200 yards, and the Bengals put up 41 points and more than 500 yards of total offense. Oh, boy. While holding the Ravens to only 17 points. To a humiliating loss at home. Seriously, an embarrassing loss for them. Next game, the New England Patriots and the New York Jets. Patriots, man, 54 to 13 over the Jets. Just blowout victory over the Jets. So the Jets deserve a grade of D minus. What keeps New York out of the F range, in my estimation, is the fact that it lost starting quarterback Zach Wilson in the opening minutes of the second quarter. In his first taste of NFL action, backup quarterback Mike White largely played well under duress, completing 20 of his 32 passes for 202 yards, a touchdown, and two picks. Outside of White, However, it was a day to forget for the Jets' defense, who gave up 54 points and 551 yards of total offense. When you're giving up that level of production to the opposing offense, you're not going to win games, and that is facts. For the Patriots, a grade of A+. When you drop 54 points and create multiple turnovers, it's hard to not consider this an A-plus performance by the Patriots. Mac Jones and co. ripped off a 17-0 run against the Jets to begin the game and put points on the board on their first six possessions. New England kept that scoring total going in the second half, finishing the final two quarters on a 23-6 run to earn the first home win of the year. Jones recorded the first 300-yard passing game of his career in the backfield, dominated with the trio of Damian Harris, Brandon Bolden, and J.J. Taylor, who finished with 218 yards from scrimmage and five total touchdowns. Now, the next game on the list, probably the most em- the most embarrassing game of the entire weekend, was the Tennessee Titans and the Kansas City Chiefs. The Titans went up winning 27-3. That is the worst loss that Patrick Mahomes has ever taken in the Kansas City era since he took over in 2017. It's the worst. Worst ever. Nothing went right for the Chiefs on Sunday. 
Patrick Mahomes threw for just 41 yards in the first half, while the Titans jumped out to a 27-0 lead. The defense couldn't stop Tennessee's receivers, the offensive line couldn't stop the pass rush, and Mahomes was inaccurate. Yeah, and the worry level for the Chiefs reached a new high on Sunday. They deserve a grade of F. And for the Titans, they deserve a grade of A+. The Titans were on a short week, having to play host to Mahomes and co. with a completely depleted secondary. It looked like this could be a good spot for the Chiefs to build some momentum for themselves, but the exact opposite happened. Truly, the exact opposite. The Titans dominated the Chiefs in every facet of the game and jumped out to a 27-point lead at halftime. The secondary forced two Mahomes turnovers, and A.J. Brown ran, ran wide open in the secondary all afternoon long. The Titans sent shockwaves around the league with this win. And I'm kind of tired of um, everyone thinking the Chiefs are just, oh, they're the it team to beat. Yeah, maybe like a couple years ago when the defense was like actually okay, the defense has been awful this year. And they are now 3-4 and four and are in last place in the AFC West, where they rightfully should be. And can we stop talking about them like they're the best team ever? Because they're not. They're horrible this year. Are the legit the best team in the AFC this year is the Bills. Personally, that's who I think the best team is. And the Titans have knocked off the Bills and the so-called best team in the league, the Chiefs. So it's time we also start talking about the Titans as well. The Bills and the Titans and even the Bengals, man, who just beat the Ravens 41-17 to and now are first place in that division, who also hosts the Browns and the Steelers, who actually aren't that bad either. So, yeah, start taking those teams a little bit more seriously, not just focus on the Chiefs here, people. Next game on the list is the Arizona Cardinals and the Houston Texans. Houston just needs to quit just playing football. The franchise is terrible. They have nobody that's good. Houston lost, got smoked. Arizona beat them 31-5. to That means the Texans deserve a grade of D. This might be the best defensive performance a team has ever given in a 31-5 to loss. Not only did the Texans' defense give Houston an early lead with the safety in the first quarter, but it also put constant pressure on Kyler Murray. The Texans sacked him a total of four times while also forcing him to throw a pick. The problem for the Texans was that their offense was embarrassingly bad. Yes, it's it's always been bad. The Texans couldn't run the ball. 42 yards. They couldn't convert on third down, just 2 of 11, and they couldn't get in the end zone. God, just a terrible football team. And the Cardinals, on the other hand, deserve a grade of A- for their performance. With the primetime matchup coming up on Thursday against Green Bay, this had all the makings of a trap game, and although it looked like Arizona might be in trouble early, the Cards quickly rebounded to stomp down the Texans. Zach Ertz came up big in his debut game, catching three passes for 66 yards, including a 47-yard touchdown. The score to Ertz was one of three that Kyler Murray threw in the game. The Cards actually trailed 5-0 in this game, and that was mostly because of the offense seemed to be sleepwalking through the first quarter. Defensively, the Cardinals manhandled the Texans' offense, holding it to just 160 yards. That is terrible, man. Next game, the LA Rams and Detroit Lions. The reason why specifically this game is on here is because this is the return of Matt Stafford to Detroit, and this is the trade. Matt Stafford to LA and Jared Goff from LA to Detroit. So this is the swap right here. The Rams ended up winning 28-19. to The Lions actually put up a pretty good fight, so they deserve a grade of B-. The talent gap was evident between the, these two teams, but I appreciated that Dan Campbell essentially acknowledged that through the aggressive play calling, his team is winless with nothing to lose, so he threw the kitchen sink at the Rams with two fake punt plays and an onside kick. 
All three were successful. While it did not result in a win, it was encouraging to see Detroit continuing to fight for its head coach. And for the Rams, a grade of B+. The awareness on special teams may need to improve. The Rams fell for two fake punts, including a play where the punter converted a first down by throwing to a covered receiver on the boundary. Defensively, Jalen Ramsey stepped up and made some big plays while a defensive line rattled Jared Goff with pressure. It was more of a challenge than expected, but Los Angeles did enough to keep pace with Arizona in the NFC West. Good game overall. And the last game on the list, Tampa Bay and Chicago Bears. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, excuse me. The Buccaneers win 38-3 in just a completely blowout game. Old school fashion. Tom just slinging it per usual. But the Bears, they deserve a grade of F for this game. Excited about Justin Fields. I think everyone would be. At least, don't be at least right now. At least until the regime is overhauled and we can make a proper evaluation because he was awful on Sunday, no doubt. Turning the ball over five times in nearly a six. But only Khalil Herbert even tempted to help out. The O-line and receivers were absent, and once again, we're left to wonder just how much more time Ryan Pace and Matt Nagy will get to right the ship. They shouldn't anymore because the team is off to a horrible start. And next on the list is the Buccaneers, a grade of A. The only reason they didn't get an A+, is because Tom Brady was uncharacteristically off-target for a stretch of the first half, throwing a record number of consecutive incompletions. Otherwise, yeah. Otherwise, dot, 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 he absolutely killed it. He still threw for four touchdowns, easily carving up Chicago's secondary once the game was out of hand. He got smooth support from Leonard Fournette. And best of all, the Bucks' defense wasted no time reminding people that Fields is an unpolished rookie being asked to carry the Bears' offense, disrupting the quarterback early and often. Yeah, they did exactly that. So those are all the recaps for the games that I, at least I think are very important. But also from this Sunday, we're going to have some, it's like six or seven facts that I found that I thought was really interesting that NFL posted. They're really, really cool. So it's cool just to add like little like number and statistical stuff into the podcast because one, those are things that I like. And, and on Sunday, we had a lot, a lot of like pretty eye-opening stuff. So one of them right here is Washington, the, the football team. Washington pulls off NFL rarity. During the football team's 24-10 loss to the Packers, they didn't punt a single time, making them just the fourth team in the Super Bowl era to have zero punts in a game where they scored 10 or fewer points. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. The next one, Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson both dealing with defeat. The 2018 MVP Mahomes and 2019 MVP Jackson both lost by 24 points on Sunday, which is the worst loss for both quarterbacks in their careers. Before Sunday, Mahomes' largest loss was by 18 points, while Jackson's largest loss was by 15. Also, Jackson had never lost in the month of October before this week. Yeah, dude, those are some pretty big ones right there. Next one right here, Joe Burrow torches the Ravens. The Bengals quarterback threw for 416 yards and three touchdowns, which is notable because it makes him the first player ever to throw for more than 400 yards and at least three touchdowns against the Ravens in Baltimore. Four other quarterbacks have done that. Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Drew Brees, and Eli Manning. Yeah, yeah. They have hit those numbers against the Ravens, but none of them did it in Baltimore. So that's pretty incredible. One thing those quarterbacks have in common is that they all have won at least one Super Bowl. So Joe Burrow, maybe a Super Bowl in your future. That's pretty cool. Next, the Cardinals win over Texans ends with final score. That's never been seen before in NFL history. 
The 30-5 final score in the Cardinals-Texans game marks the first time in NFL history that a game has ever ended with that score. It was the 1,068th different final score in NFL history. Wow. That's pretty interesting. Sorry, not 31 to 5. 30 to 5. I did a little little typo error right there. And the next one, Kyle Pitts, the tight end for Atlanta, just completely had a huge Sunday. With 163 yards against the Dolphins, Falcons tight end Kyle Pitts became the first rookie tight end with back-to-back 100-yard receiving games since Raymond Chester, who did it with the Raiders in 1970. (laughs) Bears making history. Struggling with the pass, seven weeks into the season, the Bears still have yet to finish with 200 passing yards in a game, marking the first time since 2008, the Titans, that a team has made it through the first seven weeks without hitting that number. Dude, come on, let's go. And the last one, Zach Ertz makes NFL history. The Cardinals tight end scored a touchdown against the Texans on Sunday, marking the second straight, marking the second straight week that he scored a touchdown. The twist here is that he played for the Eagles in week six, which makes him the first player in NFL history to have a receiving touchdown with two different teams in consecutive games of the same season. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty, (laughs) that's pretty insane. Also, Tom Brady on Sunday, (laughs) this man is going to play till he's 50. The dude threw one, at least one of the touchdowns through his 600th career passing touchdown. 600. 600. That is, dude, I don't even know where to begin how insane that is. Like, words words can't do that justice. Like, really, that act. 600th passing touchdown. It's incredible, dude. But the awesome thing about this one, or at least kind of scary at first, but now awesome. So the touch, his 600 touchdown pass was to Mike Evans. And Mike Evans clearly didn't know it was his 600 one because Mike Evans gave the ball to a fan in the stands. And the kid was super pumped, young guy. Oh, my gosh, I'm getting, a, I'm getting a touchdown ball from Mike Evans. How insane is that? Obviously, Evans didn't know, and Brady wanted the ball back. And at first, the fan was kind of skeptical to give the ball back. But then there had to be some negotiating a little bit. But the ball has been returned to Brady, and negotiation went like this. So the fan's name is Byron Kennedy. And he is now receiving two signed Brady jerseys, a helmet, another jersey autographed by Evans, and Evans game-worn cleats. Also, Brady is giving him one Bitcoin that is valued at $62,000. Also, the team is providing a pair of season tickets to Kennedy for the remainder of 2021, all of 2022, and a $1,000 credit to the official team store. If I wouldn't even need negotiating, obviously, like at least, okay. So I don't know how old the kid was, but my age, if, if like Brady came up to, let's say I was a Buccaneers fan. I was at that game and Mike Evans gave me the ball and Brady came up and explained to me and gave me, and he's like, Hey man, that was my 600th career passing touchdown. I want the ball. I'd be okay for sure. There'd be no hiccup. What's so even if it was 400, 500, even if it was a hundred. Yeah, dude, it's your thing. It's your record. I'll, I'd have, I'd have no problem giving that up. But I'm assuming that the Kennedy, the the young, the fan, I'm assuming was a was a was a young kid. So maybe that was why. But man, dude, I would be pumped getting all that stuff in return. Man, I would have, I wouldn't need any convincing. Hey, man, I'll take all that stuff, no problem. But yeah, that was a pretty amazing Sunday, and it's capped off by, in a pretty, a pretty amazing 
personal record to be setting and a record in that. I mean, it's not just personal. It's all of the record. It's that's all of the NFL. And I'm telling you right now, no one will ever pass that. No one will ever pass what he's doing right now in yards or touchdowns. No one will ever pass that again. He's, he's going to be up there by himself for a very long time for eternity for real. Okay. So moving on from football, we have the world series. Now I know it's been so fast. And unfortunately one of the teams I wanted to make it did my Braves, my Braves beat the Dodgers, my Braves, my Braves. Thank you. Thank you. You have helped out so many baseball fans. You've helped out their hearts. Okay. Cause no one wanted to see the Dodgers in the world series, but unfortunately the Red Sox could not beat the Astros. So the Astros are the American league team in the world series. So basically it is Atlanta. It is no, 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 not Atlanta. It's the world versus Houston because we don't like cheaters. Everyone is rooting for Atlanta in this. I'm telling you, but for the world series, it starts today. We're going to look up at the matchups and just the predictions at each positions and just the matchups and see really who has the edge because both teams I think are, are, I mean, have made it this far and are very good. Obviously they've made it to the world series, so they have to be good. Duh. And for the Braves to beat the Brewers and the Dodgers, it's a pretty tough road, man. I think that's that's probably been the toughest road out of any playoff team in the postseason this far for baseball. That is for sure the toughest task that has been given to any team. So first, we're gonna, we're doing um, not even first, but like the first thing off the list is we're doing positional matchups. So that's what we're gonna do for the matchups. So first is catcher. So Martin Maldonado hasn't hit very well this year. A 573 OPS, even less so in the playoffs. 225. Travis Leonard didn't hit much this year, 671 OPS, and hasn't hit much at all in the playoffs of 518. If you had to pick one to hit, you'd pick Darno, who was good for Atlanta in 2020, but Maldonado has game-changing abilities behind the plate, while Darno was able to do little to stop the Dodgers from taking bases at will. The advantage goes to Houston. Now, at first base, this doesn't even need to be a discussion, but it's going to be. It is a measure of just how good Freddie Freeman, 133 OPS plus, is that he gets the advantage here because Yuli Gurriel, 131 OPS plus, had basically the same regular season and is also a skilled defender. The Atlanta edge here is a small one and given mostly because ties aren't an option and because Freeman has had the more productive October. Still, it may surprise NL fans who don't closely watch the AL to realize just how good Houston's fourth most famous infielder is, but the, adva- the advantage goes to Atlanta. Second base, a similar issue persists at second base because when you get to the World Series, you're of course delving into two skilled rosters, so to make a choice is to have to pick between one extremely good player and another. This is what confronts us at the Keystone, where you can expect to hear entirely too much about how small Ozzy Albies, Five foot eight, 105 OPS plus, and Jose Altuve, five foot six, 127 OPS plus are, and not nearly enough about how fantastic their on-field work is. They both hit 30 or more or more homers this season. Altuve did so with a 40-point edge in on-base percentage, so the advantage slightly goes to Houston. But I'm personally more—I mean, I don't like Altuve at all. I'm a huge Ozzy Albies fan. So for shortstop. Similarly, so it shorts off the whole. It's going to be a whole infield battle for real. Where Dansby Swanson might be able to say that he hit one more home run than Carlos Correa did, but Correa would point out not only his superior track record, but they, but that he had a, a much better OBP 
366 to Swanson's 311, and a higher slugging percentage too, 485 to 449. Correa rates better by defensive metrics as well, though Swanson is solid with the glove. There are shortstops you'd take Swanson over. Correa isn't one of them, so the advantage is to Houston. Personally, I like Swanson more, but, I mean, statistically, Correa is better. And at third base, here perhaps our first upset. Alex Bregman is one of baseball stars. Austin Riley entered 2021, needing to prove he could be Atlanta's third baseman of the future or even present. Riley did that, and then some, blasting 33 homers with a 132 OPS+. Plus and improving his defense as the year went on. Bregman, meanwhile, had a good, not great 2021, 113 OPS+, plus, which looked a lot like last year's good, not great season. So advantage goes to the Braves. In left field, we get it. So Eddie Rosario looked like the greatest player who ever lived in the NLCS. There's no denying his role in getting Atlanta here. Though do remember that we were saying the same things about the red-hot Enrique Hernandez a week ago. Right before he went 4 for 17 to finish off the ALCS. So remember that if Rosario goes 2 for 14 in the series. As hot as Rosario has been, he had neither the regular season, 98 OPS plus, that Michael Brantley had, 119 OPS plus, nor anything approaching the track record. Neither are skilled defenders or particularly fast either. The same can be said of Jordan Alvarez, who will likely man left field for Houston in game 3 through 5 in Atlanta. He's a superior hitter to either Brantley or Rosario, further cementing the Astros' advantage in this spot. If Rosario can keep up the best run of his life for a few more days, this pick won't age well. But in general, there's no doubt which team has the edge here. That It goes to the Braves. Now in center field, Chase McCormick has quietly become one of the better defensive outfielders in the game as a rookie, though he's been sharing some of the time here with Jose Siri of late. Adam Duvall plays center more by necessity than preference for Atlanta, but he did hit 38 homers this year. There's not a huge edge here other than depending upon which skill you value, fielding, or power, and we're mostly interested in seeing what the short Crawford boxes look like to Duvall. The advantage is Braves. In right field, this has been Jock Peterson's spot for Atlanta, though we might see more Jorge Soler now that he's back in the mix. Either way, that's a pretty powerful platoon duo with a lot of value that still can't quite compare to Kyle Tucker, who had a true breakout breakout this year. His 147 OPS plus was somehow the highest in the star-laden Houston lineup, while also playing above average defense in right. You might have noticed also the four postseason homers Tucker has hit so far. So speaking of Tucker, that advantage goes to the Astros. Designated hitter spot for the first two games, as well as the final two, if the series goes that long. The World Series will be in Houston, which means the DH is in play, which means that Jordan Alvarez, 136 OPS plus in the regular season, 1.408 OPS in the ALCS, is in the lineup, and has a clear advantage over Soler or Peterson, or however the Braves choose to play it. Where it gets interesting is in Atlanta, because Alvarez did start 39 games and left, but he is a below average fielder. Still, when the DH is in play, Houston has a big edge, so the advantage goes to Houston. Starting pitching... Without the injured Lance McCullers Jr., who was unlikely to be available for the World Series, the Houston rotation got off to an ALCS start that could only be described as disastrous. None of the first four starters in order, Framber Valdez, Luis Garcia, Jose Urquidy, or Zach Granke, 
managed to complete even three innings in the first four games, making it something of a miracle Houston managed to split. But in Game 5, Valdez was fantastic, eight innings, one run. In Game 6, Garcia was dominant, five and and two-thirds innings, zero runs. It doesn't erase the problems manager Dusty Baker faced a few days ago, but those two sure make things look better. Still, the Braves have relied on their rotation all year, and the postseason has been no different. Their starters, primarily Max Freed, Ian Anderson, and Charlie Morton, have combined for a 3.27 postseason ERA, easily the best of the final four teams. Do they have a four starter? No, not really. Then again, neither does Houston, assuming McCullers can't go. Neither did anyone this October, but the uh, advantage goes to the Braves. Relief pitchers. So it's fair to say the bullpens haven't really been considered a strength of either side, at least not in the same way you could say for other teams, and yet each club's relievers have performed well in October. Houston's bullpen took its 4.06 regular season ERA and offered a 3.42 in the first two rounds. Atlanta took its 3.7 regular season and gave a 3.56. In some sense, that's expected because each side is going only with its best, and you don't get this far if those pitchers aren't performing well. There are not really big differences here because the Pens have had similar October strikeout rates and walk rates. We give the slightest of edges to the Astros for two reasons. First, because they have the single best reliever on either roster in Ryan Presley, and second, because Atlanta's best relievers are left-handed, which might be great for neutralizing Alvarez, Brantley, and Tucker. Yet we can't imagine any Braves fan being terribly excited about Luke Jackson or Jesse Chavez being called upon in a big spot against Altuve, Correa, or Bregman. We're forced to acknowledge as well that Houston's bullpen kept the team afloat while the rotation collapsed during the the first four games of the ALCS, so bonus credit there. All that said, Tyler Matzek is the best story in baseball right now. And he's just a handful of big pitches away from turning his journey from incredible to eternal. Anyone not wearing orange and blue would surely like to see that. But the advantage is to Houston. So those are all the matchups right there. What do you think? Let me know. World Series is already upon us here, people. That's pretty crazy. But that is all we have for baseball. And just a short thing before we end the show as well. Did you know that basketball is starting too? Not even starting. Basketball is happening. It's in, it's insane, dude. It, the sports just fly by. Lakers already, they've already played three games already. Yeah, so basketball's already back around again, so it gives me another sport to talk about. Absolutely incredible. But thank you once again for checking in for episode 73 of Ballin' with Tyler Todd. Episode 74 will be airing this Friday at 5 p.m. I will see you all then. Peace out.